The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I guess it started about uh, two months ago. Well, perhaps you were afraid of getting hurt again, and this recent dysfunction is your mind's way of protecting you. <laughs> I don't think so. I see. Why does that possibility bother you so much? What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? You said match. Why does it bother me so much? No, I said much. It sounded like match. No, that's silly. Why would I say match? Maybe you had a need not to hear me. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be if you use the wrong words when attempting to be heard, then probably no one will hear you. They'll hear some noise coming out of your mouth, but they won't hear your message. Otherwise, you'll end up with a mismatch that won't amount to much. <laughs> in the beginning was the word, and so too in the beginning of our show today is the word, so if you'd care to stick around for the next hour or so, I'd like to have a word with you. Right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Words are the software with which we program the hardware of our minds. And if those words and their definitions accurately describe reality, both in terms of facts and understood principles of nature, then you've got a situation where you could properly argue that such a person is in their quote-unquote right mind or in political terms, on the right. And if those words and their definitions do not describe or correspond to reality in the same manner as just described, then you'll have created a situation where the person so afflicted could be said to be, quote-unquote, out of their mind, or in political terms, on the left. Last week, we warned about how the world politically is moving just left, and we explained why the only way we'll ever discover freedom is by getting off of the political spectrum, and to return to an understanding of the polarity of the ideas represented by the left of collectivism and the right of individualism. This led us to a discussion about fundamental philosophical concepts, in particular, the polarity of thinking that arises between those who operate on the primacy of consciousness and those who accept the primacy of existence. Now, in response to last week's show, we got some very interesting feedback from one of our longtime listeners and supporters, Marie T., under the subject heading, Little Crow and Other Rambling Thoughts. And Little Crow refers to a song Murray wrote and performed, and I'll be following up with him to include it in our next broadcast when we feature music that's just right, which I anticipate is not that far off. But in referring to our show last week, here's what Murray had to say. Quote, 
I'm listening to the part on Jordan Peterson and the primacy of consciousness. I still struggle with the axiom of existence exists and hold it a bit on faith. I was reading Leonard Peikoff's Understanding Objectivism this week, trying to get a grip on this weakness of mine. I'm at a part where he puts out a list of 20 ideas and puts them in order in a hierarchy. This is what I was looking for, the sequential order of how I can know the argument and logic of existence exists. But was still needing to run it through my head several times. Your explanation, however, is so simple and sensible. I'll listen a few more times and make some notes too, end quote. Well, actually, Murray, your comment and a couple of other comments that you made that we'll share later in the show couldn't have arrived at a better time, especially since they concerned last week's show, whose theme I had intended to extend into this week's presentation in any event. And your comment about saying that you're struggling with the axiom that existence exists, in particular, your comment that you find yourself having to accept that, quote-unquote, a little bit on faith, it actually speaks to the very heart of the issue because that's kind of a reasonable way to look at it. And I think that you're being a bit hard on yourself. You're not struggling with the concept. You've pretty much figured it out and you're struggling with something else. Now, I'm sure that a discussion about the sequential order of how you can know the argument and logic of existence exists would be a most fascinating and insightful discussion. But I don't think it's necessary. You're still looking for a proof where none exists and none is possible, and therein lies the cause of what you called this weakness of mine. And in feeling like you have to accept that axiom, a little bit on faith, what you're really saying is that you have to just accept it. And you're absolutely right on that point. Describing that acceptance as an act of faith is certainly an understandable way of describing it. The statement, existence exists, is an axiomatic concept, described in the Ayn Rand lexicon thusly, and I quote, An axiomatic concept is the identification of a primary fact of reality, which cannot be analyzed, i.e. reduced to other facts or broken into component parts. It is implicit in all facts and in all knowledge. It is the fundamentally given and directly perceived or experienced, which requires no proof or explanation, but on which all proofs and explanations rest. The first and primary axiomatic concepts are existence and identity, which is a corollary of existence, and consciousness. One can study what exists and how consciousness functions, but one cannot analyze or quote-unquote prove existence as such or consciousness as such. These are irreducible primaries. An attempt to prove them is self-contradictory. It is an attempt to prove existence by means of non-existence and consciousness by means of unconsciousness." End quote. Now on the point of existence, I actually think the problem is a lot simpler than that. And you've often heard me express it in the saying, ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? And you know, that's a profound existential statement if you stop to think about it. For example, one of the reasons that I don't buy into the Big Bang Theory when people are trying to describe it as the beginning of existence itself is that there's no such condition as non-existence in the sense of 
the supreme being of all totality, of all existence, which is the being of all. Non-existent does not exist, and even if it did, it wouldn't. <laughs> See the inherent contradiction? It's not an existent. To even talk about non-existent in this context is treating it like a quote-unquote something. And wouldn't that be something? The word existence in this context is a complete abstraction, one necessary for us to cope with that abstraction that we call existence. In other words, existence is not something concrete in the way that entities which exist are concrete. Here again from the Ayn Rand lexicon, and I quote, Since axiomatic concepts refer to facts of reality and are not a matter of faith or of a man's arbitrary choice, there is a way to ascertain whether a given concept is axiomatic or not. One ascertains it by observing the fact that an axiomatic concept cannot be escaped, that it is implicit in all knowledge, that it has to be accepted and used even in the process of any attempt to deny it. It is worth noting at this point that what the enemies of reason seem to know, but its alleged defenders have not discovered, is the fact that axiomatic concepts are the guardians of man's mind and the foundation of reason, the keystone, the touchstone, and the hallmark of reason. And if reason is to be destroyed, it is axiomatic concepts that have to be destroyed. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. You cannot prove that you exist or that you're conscious, they chatter, blanking out the fact that proof presupposes existence, consciousness, and a complex chain of knowledge. The existence of something to know, of a consciousness able to know it, and of a knowledge that has learned to distinguish between such concepts as the proved or the unproved. End quote. Consider the role and application of Rand's points that existence is identity and consciousness is identification. Think about it. We're living in an era of what has been called identity politics. Is it any wonder that the enemies of reason have chosen these very axioms as the vulnerable points of attacking the human mind? The word existence is the grand abstraction and does not have a concrete application as a quote-unquote thing apart from the entities that go in and out of existence. When we talk about the primacy of consciousness versus the primacy of existence, it is important to understand that these are just abstract terms, terms that refer to a way of thinking about reality and the nature of existence, not about representing some kind of polarity with regard to the reality of existence itself. So this gives a new meaning to the term being in your right mind, as in a mind acting in accordance with reality. Now, we're encouraged by the left to chant racist slogans like Black Lives Matter when it's not the color of your skin that matters, it's the color of your ideas. Ideas matter. Are they blue or red or green or orange or are they framed by the understanding that some things are black and white? A couple of weeks ago, I quite accidentally discovered a new voice, uh, new to me that is, whose online show is called Ideas Have Consequences and is based on the premise that ideas do matter. His name is Larry Alex Taunton. He is 
very openly a committed Christian, one who is also very clearly committed to the discovery of truth and to a discussion of ideology. And those are both things which happened to touch upon our own discussion last week about ideologies contrasted against religions. Now I have to confess that the audio bites we've selected today, which feature Mr. Taunton, are all from a single, much longer presentation he hosted on May 26, being the only one of his shows I've so far seen and heard from end to end. But what really fascinated me was how the theme of his show so much parallels that of our own. Now, on this particular day, Taunton was reacting to the Elon Musk controversy that erupted due to something Musk said about George Soros. But Taunton's conversation expanded into an incredible array of very interesting observations about left and right, freedom of speech, ideology, religion, all topped off with some very insightful and informative facts of history and philosophy, and fundamentally dealing with the themes of our past two broadcasts. And just FYI, the initial opening comments we're about to hear are how Taunton starts each of his shows, based on the few that I sampled. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debate, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're going to be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. How do you make a choice? You don't see, I mean, in terms of when you're going to engage. I mean, for example, even today, Elon, you, you, you tweeted this thing about George Soros. Well, I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly. But, I mean, you know what you wrote. But you basically... I said it reminds me of Magneto. It's just like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like made a federal well, case said, out of it. You, also, you, know, <laughs> you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you Yeah, think I think about, that's true. That's my opinion. Okay. But why share it? Why share it? Especially because, I mean... <laughs> what a prick! He's, he's like, sounds like a schoolmaster. Why say that? I mean, come on, Elon. Come on. Why say things like that? Well, why share it when people who buy Teslas may not agree with you? Advertisers on Twitter may not agree with you. Um, 
why not just say, hey, I think this. You can tell me. We can talk about it over there. You can tell your friends. But why share it widely? I mean, I, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I you want. You absolutely are. But I'm trying to understand why you do, because you have to know it's got a there. It puts you in, a, in the middle of a the partisan divide in the country. It makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I, you know, people today are saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely not. I'm, okay. I'm, like, I'm like a pro-Semite, if anything. <laughs> I, I believe that probably is the case. Yes. But why would you even introduce the idea then? But he didn't introduce the idea of the case. I, I mean, look, we don't want to make this a George Soros interview. No, um, God, no. I, so, don't, I don't want to at all. Uh, but I'm, what I'm trying, even came up though in the annual meeting. I mean, you know, do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because, and I know it because he shares so much of it. Or are there advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarino will come and say, you got to stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the, the scene in The Princess Bride. Great movie. Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father. And he says, offer me money, offer me power, I don't care. So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say? I'll say what I want to say, and if, if, if uh, the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Okay. It's good. I like it. Well, my reaction to Musk's statement there is I think that he's bristling at the idea that free speech applies to everyone but Elon Musk. Um, somehow, a, um, a very ideologically driven network that is very partisan in the public debate has the nerve to say to Musk, you shouldn't be partisan and you shouldn't be ideologically driven in the public debate, as we are. How dare you? They wouldn't have said that if he was pushing trans ideology. They wouldn't have said that if he was pushing Marxism. They wouldn't have said that if he was pro-Biden. They wouldn't have said that if he had chosen to quote, instead of Princess Bride, um, Obama. They would have said that at all. They only said that because they didn't like what he was saying. We believe in free speech unless you say something we don't like. We believe in free speech unless your speech runs counter to our own ideological position. That's what I think Musk is saying there, and I, I frankly agree with him. And I would agree with him, by the way, even if he wasn't saying something that I agreed with. I think one of the things that's changed in a very, very dangerous way in this country is I'll make a difference between liberals and Democrats and radical left, just to define my terms. <clears throat> By radical left, I mean the global left. Democrats, I mean those specific to this country. Liberals, um, which has traditionally been a, a term used in this country for... Um, for Democrats, or for those on the left. Liberals, I will define this way, old school traditional liberals were people who loved their country. They might have voted for Clinton or for um, 
you know, for Mondale or Jimmy Carter or whoever, but they love their country. They were patriotic. And they would fight for your rights to say what you wanted to say. They believed in a marketplace of ideas. That is not what we are anymore. The Democrats of my father's day are very different than the Democrats um, of today. And it's a very, very dangerous change, a very dangerous shift. So, and I think Musk senses that, and he's tweeted, I mean, you talk about some of the more interesting tweets, are not the tweets about Soros, is he has tweeted more than once that he believes, and this will sound like hyperbole to some, that the future of civilization depends on free speech. I think, I think he meant it when he said that's why he bought tw Twitter, is he felt like it's not necessarily a, he, he wants it to make money, but that's not why he bought it. I think if it breaks even for him, I think he's okay with that. I think he bought it because he really believes the future of civilization depends on it. Why does Musk call Soros evil? Let me tell you something about Soros that Musk probably knows, but maybe he doesn't. George Soros was a student of a philosopher by the name of Karl Popper at the London School of Economics. Popper was an enormously influential philosopher. Again, kind of like Peter Singer. He was a guy that, that had a, um, just massive influence on the post-World War II world. And some have painted him as a very evil character. I don't personally think that he is. I think he is, his philosophy was an overreaction to World War II and to the Cold War that followed. But his philosophy went something like this, so that you can, you can get a framework for how he thought. In the aftermath of World War II, Soros had decided, excuse me, in the aftermath of World War II, Popper had decided that the war was the result of what he called two historicist ideologies. And historicism is this idea that history is predetermined, that is moving irresistibly in a particular direction. We could say in some sense that Christians are historicists. We believe we're moving irresistibly from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Well, you see, Marxists believe that, here, that, that history is moving irresistibly towards communism, you know, towards these various stages of, um, of, of class warfare. And the fascists believe that it was a war of the blood. It's racial war, not economic war, and that it's moving in a particular direction as well. And he said, look, in order for democracies to sustain themselves, there must be a permanent uncertainty about who has the truth. Because anyone who claims to have the truth is a potential tyrant. And so he would work off of the philosophy, the general, uh, excuse me, the German philosopher um, Lessing, who would retell the story of the three ring parable. The three ring parable comes from Boccaccio's Decameron and it probably has roots that go back to uh, before Christ. But the three ring parable in brief was this idea that a, a father had a magic ring and that whoever possessed that ring would be loved by God and man. Problem was he had three sons and he loved all of his sons. And in the course of his own lifetime, of their lifetime, when he was alone with them, his love for them flowed so strong that he accidentally promised each of them 
the ring. So he had a dilemma. Each son was expecting to inherit the ring. So he had a artisan craft two false but identical rings. And then he bequeathed to each of his son a ring. And they wanted to know who possessed the real ring. And they were not told. Let each one believe that he alone possesses the magic ring and show forth tolerance to his two brothers. Now, Boccaccio, when he was, you know, when he's relating this story is during the Crusades and Lessing is telling the story during the Enlightenment. But the idea was the three major religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Who, which, which one is the real ring? Which one is true? It's a danger for any one of them to think they have the truth. Let each one of them believe, but show forth tolerance towards the other. So he's calling for tolerance. Let's stop slaughtering each other in these wars. Forward to Karl Popper. Popper is saying essentially the same thing. We can't know who has the truth, or even if there is transcendent truth. So let's show tolerance to one another. The problem with that philosophy is, of course, it throws the baby out with the bathwater. It even does an end run on even pursuing, even trying to discover who has the truth. And it isn't, that a, isn't that a pursuit in and of itself? That's, isn't that a crusade, a, a quest that's worth undertaking to discover the truth? I personally undertook that quest in my high school years. I want to know what was true. I don't want to go around, you know, uh, um, my life based on nonsense. I want to be based on the truth. So you want to know the truth? The truth is a tyrant. It is unforgiving. It is immutable. But most fundamentally, the truth is knowledge, and knowledge is power. Not a power over others, though some will attempt to use it that way, but a power over nature, a power that accepts the power that nature has over us, and understands that nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. And as knowledge, it must be relevant knowledge, relevant to the life of rational human beings whose goal is to live and survive, not to kill and die. After all, there is an infinite array of facts and information available to human beings that qualifies as knowledge. But as the Scottish philosopher John McMurray warned, knowledge for knowledge's sake can often turn out to be mischievous as he put it. It can really mess with the human mind if an attempt is made to determine a purpose to one's life based on all of this unrelated knowledge, rather than pursuing only that knowledge that is subservient to one's own chosen purpose in life and to survival itself. I suppose on a kind of superficial level, it's a bit like saying that someone who earns a living by building and fixing cars should prioritize his knowledge about mechanics and physics and the laws of motion, etc., knowledge relevant to his needs, rather than about the nuances, say, of gravitational forces at play between the galaxies in the universe. Of course, if you make your living by being a scientist, astronomer, or physicist, the prioritization would be in the reverse. And please, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with wanting to know about both mechanics and universal gravitational forces, if you find that such knowledge improves your enjoyment of life. But do keep in mind 
that this tyrannical truth tells us that our time on this earth is very limited and therefore priorities must be established. Don't be squandering your time acquiring mischievous knowledge at the cost of never gaining the valuable and applied knowledge that you want and need, that knowledge that satisfies the pursuit of happiness in your life. In the context of knowledge, this reminds me of something we always find ourselves observing about human history and how we fail to learn from history. We see it so often. Why is that? Now, of course, I've argued that we never learn from history if the events of history are only understood on a superficial narrative level. During World War II, the Nazis fought the West and the Russians at the same time, and we convinced ourselves that we won that war. But what did we learn from it? To answer that question requires an understanding of the philosophy, the ideas that were the driving forces behind the events we witnessed. But postmodernism rejects such knowledge to the point of condemning those who do seek it. For example, just look at how politically incorrect it has been made to bring up Hitler's name in the context of anything that's happening today. I remember a few years back when then London, Ontario City Councillor Steve Orser, in arguing his case before City Council to stop adding fluoride to the city's drinking water, likened the practice of fluoridation to something that Hitler's regime would have done in the sense of administering a drug to people without their informed consent. He was roundly condemned by virtually every member of city council, the media, other politicians, and the public alike. We covered that event on a past broadcast of this show, and I dare say we were the only voice that publicly came out to the defense of Orser on this count. And just look at where we are today on the matter of forced injections, whose purpose has yet to be acknowledged by those who are forcing them. Every person who objected to any Hitlerian comparisons did so because they subconsciously knew that they were little Hitlers themselves. And just wait till you hear the haunting and terrifying observations that Larry Taunton makes on this very topic. Coming up next. A person can be an evil man without knowing he's an evil man. Sometimes I think we, we mistake this. I have found myself in recent months, maybe, maybe for the last couple of years, I've been thinking on the proverb that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it only brings him death. You know, if, if you think on that, it's quite profound because our society places a premium on sincerity. We're willing to forgive an awful lot if you're sincere. But you know, you can be sincerely evil. And what I mean by that is I've been reading, I've been reading the strangest book. It is an attempt to rehabilitate Eva Braun, the wife of Adolf Hitler. You are a bold author to set out <laughs> to rehabilitate Eva Braun. But she's kind of the author is portraying Eva Braun as a bit of a victim of Adolf Hitler um, and of her time but she portrays her as a very nice and likable person. You can be a very nice and likable person and be evil. This is what happens to a society. Again, do, do ideas have consequences? Our society has dropped belief in the doctrine of evil. And so we assume that evil people always manifest themselves as, you know, with devils as pitchforks and horns. 
I read last summer several of the memoirs of Hitler's closest intimates. And do you know what they all had in common? They all loved Adolf Hitler. It's actually quite unsettling when you think about it. They said he was very generous, very kind, quite tolerant, told funny jokes, remembered your birthday, always expressed his gratitude for the things he did for him. There is the problem of six and a half million Jews. But other than that, he was a very nice guy. We do posterity and injustice when we portray Adolf Hitler as an absolute maniac. We do posterity and injustice when we do that because we're telling them, you see, the, the evil people in society, they'll be blinking. You, you'll know them immediately because there's something different about them, they're warped and they're messed up and so forth. Not the case with Adolf Hitler. A lot of Western people who met him said he was charming, likable. Stalin too. Mao, many have said that he was a, a devastating individual in person, his conversation and his conduct. The point is that evil, evil isn't, isn't just about views that are sincerely hold, held, excuse me, or, or whether or not you pick up the tab at the end of the dinner meal. It's about the things, the, 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 the state of your heart and how that comes out with malice towards other people. It may not be towards all other people. Hitler, by all accounts, loved children. Not Jewish children, but he liked children, loved his dogs. If you weren't Jewish and you had a dog, he probably liked you fine. Loved Hollywood movies. But he was a killer. We all want to paint Adolf Hitler's as grotesque manifestations, anomalies in history, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm better than him. I would never do that. If Adolf Hitler had gotten into architectural school, he probably never killed a human being. How many potential Hitlers are there wandering around us? I would argue that there are plenty of them. If you see how people have behaved with a little bit of power they're given regarding mask mandates, recycling, you met the recycling Nazis? They're crazies. The stewardess on the plane who is, who is you know, uh, using her authority like a whip the passenger on the plane who's doing the same thing. Imagine those people in positions of real power. What would they do? The people who are spewing hate all over social media, if they had the power to deport your family, would they do it? Probably. It's just that they don't. So we don't think of them or put them in the same category, the same class. Adolf Hitler was an ideologue. Um, and the WEF, the World Economic Forum, is made up of ideologues. They're sure their ideas matter more than you do. And it's where you get a statement like this. You know, a uh, lady asked her, you know, asked Stalin, 
I think in 1931, she asked Stalin, when are you going to stop killing people? And he said, when it's no longer necessary. There was no sense of irony in answering that question. He wasn't trying to be sarcastic. He meant it. When you make the socialist omelet, you have to break a few eggs. You know, that's, and it's because ideologues see human beings as just raw material, brick and mortar for building the utopian state, whatever it is. My traveling around the world began with a basic assumption. If human nature is the same the world over, and every thoughtful person I know, of course, would say that it is, then how do we account for North Korea's, for China's, for Nigeria's, for South Africa's, for the degradation of almost the entire continents of Africa and South America, or for America. Why is America a better place to live than North? I mean, if human nature is the same, how do we count for the differences? Well, the answer is the ideas that those cultures absorbed. One was deeply influenced by the gospel. America's not a Christian nation now, nor has it ever been. We were founded on a mix of Judeo-Christian and Enlightenment principles, which are iron and clay. Not since the dawn of time has there been a truly Christian nation, but there have been those nations that are deeply, deeply influenced by the Christian faith, and none more than the United States. It's encoded into our laws, into our arts, into our literature. You can't hope to understand English literature, American literature, if you don't have some kind of understanding of the Bible. Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Who's Absalom? <laughs> well, you're not going to get this novel if you don't know that. Shakespeare. Countless biblical references. Can't get him if you don't know that. It has served as a foundation of Western civilization and America most of all. Well, another way to put ideas have consequences is that ideas matter, and they, they either lead to life or death. There's no in-between. Um, every, every, I used to have my students bring in advertisements. You know, tear one out of a magazine, or if you saw one on TV, uh, you know, write it down, quote it for us, bring it in, and we're going to discuss it. And it was my way of demonstrating that ideas have consequences. My way of demonstrating that every advertisement is pushing a philosophy. You deserve a break today is an old famous one at uh, McDonald's. Who says I deserve a break today? It's playing on a victim mentality. It's playing on the idea that I think I'm being mistreated. Twix, two for me, none for you. <laughs> it's funny. And it's meant to be playful, and I'm actually not critical of Twix and that, but it's playing on an inherent greed. It is pushing that ideology. And every advertisement, we're, we're, it's, it's like gamma rays are going through us. They just wash over us all day long. And if you think those things don't affect you, they do. So I want people to understand 
that the philosophies that you adopt, they either lead you in the direction of truth towards life, or they lead you in the direction of lies and death. There's no in-between. There might be degrees of it, but there's, there's no in-between. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And did that message we just heard sound vaguely familiar? Larry Alex Taunton clearly understands the basic fundamental political polarity of everything necessary to decision-making in human life. But the most haunting part of his commentary came in his question that he posed as, how many potential Hitlers are there walking around us? And I think about how London City Hall treated Steve Orser for daring to point his finger at them for acting like potential Hitlers. That, to me, has been the scariest phenomenon that has emerged since the fictions of fighting climate change and COVID were foisted on us. He talks about the recycling Nazis, the stewardesses, and the passengers, all the COVID whips. Imagine them in positions of real power. Would they kill you? Probably, he says, and I, I think it's pretty true. He's right on that one. And when he noted that Hitler was an ideologue and that they're sure that their ideas matter more than you do, this was the exact same observation made by Colonel Douglas McGregor and by Melanie Phillips as each was featured on the show last week. While Phillips noted that for ideologues, the idea holds complete sway, McGregor reiterated that observation when he commented that to ideologues, nothing matters but what they believe. And now we hear the very same observation being made by Taunton. What all these observations have in common is that they are referring to the thought processes that operate on the supremacy of consciousness. Which brings me back to the feedback we got from Murray T., who asks, quote, are the objectivists losing the plot? I was very surprised to hear the modern objectivists from the Ayn Rand Center getting many aspects of COVID wrong. Harry Binswanger himself, while explaining epistemology and definitions, taking apart sample words, in the same podcast, goes on to accept the word vaccine at face values and describes the hokey pokey as one. And basically, anyone that doesn't take it as... Well, the same as the left describes us. The very guys who are so well studied about definitions getting definitions wrong? What is going on? Thinking maybe this is just Harry, I was listening to a live group discussion where they referred to the unhokey-pokeyed as conspiracy theorists and anti-hokey-pokeyists. <laughs> wow, I really don't think Ayn Rand would have fallen for this scam. That doesn't mean I can't still learn from them. But it's disappointing, end quote. Well, I'm with you on that one, Murray. Disappointing is the perfect word to describe it. And within my own circle of objectivist fans, we're all scratching our heads over that one. I ran into the same disconnect on issues ranging from free trade to abortion and to Donald Trump himself, in instances where an objectivist spokesperson would contradict and violate objectivism's own rules of epistemology. But therein lies the handicapped, caused by being wholly immersed in theory while lacking any experience with applying that theory in practice. It's the Department of Applied Mathematics, not just the Department of Mathematics. I can still hear Professor Chris Essex reminding me of the difference. Now, as Taunton argued, when it comes to ideology, 
everything in your life is being defined either by your ideas or by the ideas of the people around you. Now, of course, having the right ideas is just the first step in promulgating those ideas. The second step is about how well or how effectively you can articulate those ideas. The Adoption Agency needs letters of recommendation, and we were wondering if you would write one for us. Of course, I'd be honored. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I think there's been an oversight. Joe, we would have asked you. We just thought you wouldn't be interested. Yeah, it's just that we don't think of you as really being so much with the words. Wait, wait, hey, wait, hey, oh, hey. Clearly, we were wrong. Look, I got a lot of nice stuff to say about you guys, okay? And I know how much you want to have a baby, and I would love to help you get one. You know what? Enjoy. We want you to do it. Thank you. All right. Let me see how I'm going to start. Dear baby adoption decider people. <laughs> so excited about your letter. <laughs> you once said... The most dangerous person is one who is articulate. Mm. What would you recommend to a one who wants to learn to speak in a more articulate manner? Well, articulate is an interesting word, eh? Because if your joints are articulated, and that means you can do things with them because they're articulated, right? They're not one solid, vague mass. They're differentiated. And someone who's graceful is articulated and compelling because they're articulated and speech is a form of articulation in that manner because the act of speech itself is extremely complicated it's a very complicated motor activity right it's a very complicated action to dance with your tongue let's say and it is definitely the case that there is no more exceptional form of the capacity to be dangerous than to be articulate. And one of the things that really shocks me is that young men in particular are never taught this. It's like, well, why learn to, why be literate? Well, do you, do you want to be, do you want to be competent and dangerous or do you want to be vague and useless? Because those are your options and I don't care what your job is, it doesn't matter what you end up doing. You can think through your problems. You're, you're firing on all cylinders. You know, our whole culture is based on the idea of the supremacy of the word. Our whole culture is based on the idea that it is the word itself that extracts habitable order from chaos and possibility. And, and the reason our culture is predicated on that is because it's a deep truth. And to the degree that our culture actually embodies that, it works. So, it's a great thing to be articulate. And you can listen to yourself, and you can stop humming and hawing and using like and you know and fillers, and you can take the time necessary to craft your words carefully, and you can practice merely saying what you believe to be true, and you can read and you can read great writers, and you can write, and you can write about what you think about the problems that obsess you. 
and you can become articulate as a consequence. And there'll be nothing about that that isn't the adventure of your life. And so it's a moral endeavor in some real sense. Right? To become articulate is to become the master of your own tongue. And to become properly articulate is to, is to make the word divine and to treat it in that manner and to decide whether or not you believe that it is the case that the divine word creates the order that's habitable and good. The divine nature of the word. That description fits beautifully into the biblical reference that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In fact, Peterson directly quoted that statement when he first appeared on Just Right's own YouTube channel back on July 18, 2017, on the topic of why freedom of speech is not just another value. No doubt he probably would agree with Taunton's conclusion that the future of civilization depends on free speech. But for the benefit of those who may not have identified the meaning of that biblical reference, I hope no one is suffering from what I believe to be a misunderstanding, that it refers to something like the beginning of time, or the beginning of the universe, or the beginning of existence. No, in the beginning was the word, refers to the dawn of consciousness, which requires concepts and words in order to function and to discover the nature of the existence in which that consciousness finds itself. The great mystery, of course, is how this beginning manifested itself. Was it a process that occurred over a great span of time, or was it a rapid and sudden development in the species we refer to as human? Or did it happen when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge? My guess is that if we remain on the path of truth, we will eventually learn the answer to that puzzle, and perhaps answers to questions we haven't even thought of asking yet. Now, I sensed it without realizing it, inciting what he called the supremacy of the word, that the word itself extracts habitable order from chaos and possibility, and that it's a deep truth. Peterson has discovered the principle enunciated by Ayn Rand, that working with accurate and unchanging definitions is the means to discovering truth. Interesting, his use of the word dangerous in the way Peterson articulated his argument. <laughs> dangerous? Dangerous to whom? Dangerous, of course, to the left. But not dangerous in any physically threatening way. What he means is dangerously effective and influential. I mean, why else is freedom of speech even an issue? You know why? Because liars fear the truth. And how do you spot a liar? Just look for the guy advocating controls on speech or outright censorship. That person is a liar, or at least working for one. And people who lie lie to hide things, things far more morally and possibly criminally reprehensible than the lying itself. Now, anyone who expresses their own ideas in the public realm is engaging in a definition game, in line with Taunton's thinking. Everything in your life is being defined either by your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. Define or be defined. This principle, I believe, has largely been a blow against those on the right who have allowed the left to define them rather than defining themselves. Even to the point of inventing a political spectrum with communism on the left and fascism on the right. Talk about letting yourself be defined by others. As we illustrated last week, being labeled right-wing extremist 
still seems to paralyze many on the right into submission, a submission to the left. And on the topic of proof, how might you respond to someone asking you to prove the truth? Where would you begin? By rejecting the very premise of that question? I mean, if something's true, does it even need a proof? Or they might say that that's too broad. What truth? Well, if you attempted to answer that question, you would find that you would be forced into an analysis, the very thing that Rand cautioned against when dealing with axiomatic concepts. Demanding a quote-unquote proof for everything we know and experience is kind of like a sickness or dysfunction caused by living in a scientific age. Blinded by science is a great expression to describe this irrational demand for proof. Blinded by science is also a good way to describe those who demand that we follow the science. You know what one of the most horrible demands for proof is? Prove to me that you love me. (laughs) Doesn't that sound romantic? It's not enough that you may indeed love a person, but now you need to prove it? The proof, such that it exists, is everything that you do for or refrain from doing to the person that you love. And this applies to love in every sense of that word, not just the romantic. So to be asked for proof in this context suggests a motivation not entirely related to the accuracy of any specific evidence that could be taken as proof. Nor is this kind of proof scientific in any way. Scientific proof requires demonstrating a principle or phenomenon that can be repeated and analyzed and measured according to a very specific set of, yes, proven standards. Ayn Rand always argued that the road to truth was less about proofs than it was a road paved with accurate concepts and definitions. Knowing that, it's easy not only to identify the truth, but to identify the evil that necessarily motivates those who would change or alter definitions to the point of turning them into anti-concepts. Now here's a final rambling from Murray T., Quote, regarding the Petersons of the world, i.e. the academic philosophers like Julie Penesey, who I really like both of them, about a year ago I was listening to Julie Penesey's podcast where she had a couple of students on and I thought this was a good reflection of what probably goes on in the university philosophy situation. The instructor, Julie, takes on a very passive role. It was all about everyone expressing their opinion with very little guidance or direction from Julie. It was as if they or she believed that no one idea was better than any other. They were all valid based on the fact that they were expressed more than with their alignment with reality. I can't imagine anyone walking away from that kind of education any more advanced in their thinking than when they walked in. I think this confirms Leonard Peikoff's observation in Why Johnny Can't Think. Again, just like the objectivists, there is still much to learn from someone like Peterson, but I don't listen to him as much. I think this is because I find that I cannot store his ideas as a whole. It's just a bunch of small, mostly disconnected hints, each having to be validated or invalidated over time. This is not the same as objectivism, and I think the Just Right podcast is even better in that way. The fog lifts every time I listen to Just Right, end quote. Well, thank you, Murray, for both your insights and for your ongoing support. And while we're on the subject of Just Right, before we wrap up, 
I have an announcement to make. Many of you may be aware that this show, Just Right, ultimately evolved from a previous discussion show on which I was a regular panelist, and that show was called Left, Right, and Center, whose audio archive is still available on the site of Just Right Media. Left, Right, and Center debuted in London, Ontario on CJBKM Radio, a station which I now have mixed feelings about in announcing no longer exists to use our word of the day. Tune in to 1290 AM radio in London, Ontario today and all you'll get is static. Yes, CJBK and a number of its affiliates went off the air last week on Wednesday, if my understanding is correct. Now, I say mixed feelings because, of course, it's very unlikely that this show would ever have existed <laughs> were it not for CJBK's airings of Left, Right, and Center, for which I am very thankful. Those discussions were hosted, most times, by talk show host Jim Chapman, who himself was forced to leave the station and moved his show to CHRWFM, where Left, Right, and Center continued to be aired and eventually evolved into Just Right. But CJBK, so much like the zeitgeist of the day, continually drifted leftward to the point where it drifted itself into oblivion. And in recent years, I found it intolerable to listen to the left-wing irrationalities and fake news spewing daily from that station, and seeing an end to that is also something about which I am now thankful. So there you have it, from left, right, and center to just right. And on that note, and to borrow from the experience of Murray, here's our invitation to you to discover that you too can keep lifting the fog by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be What's your, what you working on? Oh, Monica Chandler's recommendation. I want it to sound smart, but I don't know any big words or anything, so... Well, why don't you use your thesaurus? What'd I just say? <laughs> Watch. Here, you, uh, you highlight the word you want to change, mm-hmm. uh, go under tools, and the thesaurus generates, gives... <laughs> gives a whole list of choices. You can pick the word that sounds smartest. Oh. Oh my God, that's great. I'm smart. No, no, I'm brainy, bright, clever. I love this thing. <laughs> Look out, ladies. Joey Tribbiani's got the whole package. Hey, finish my recommendation. Here. And I think you'll be very, very happy. I don't uh, understand. Some of the words are a little too sophisticated for you. It doesn't make any sense. Well, of course it does. It's smart. I used a thesaurus. <laughs> On every word? Yep. All right. What was this sentence originally? Oh, they are warm, nice people with big hearts. And that became, they are humid, prepossessing homo sapiens <laughs> with full-sized aortic pumps. Yeah, yeah, and hey, I really mean it, dude. All right, Joey, I don't think we can use this. Why not? Well, because you signed it, Baby Kangaroo Tribbiani. (laughs) 
Why don't you stop worrying about sounding smart and just be yourself? You know what? You don't need a thesaurus. Just right from here. Your full-sized aortic pump.